are listening to Out of the Box with Rosie Tran. Out of the Box is sponsored by HugMeTees.com. Spread love, give a hug, HugMeTees.com. Guys, I am so excited about all of the positive emails lately. However, I just want to remind everyone, if you have a positive comment about the podcast, to go on our iTunes or Stitcher page and leave it there. That helps us out so much more than sending me a direct email. And now, as always, we are on soundcloud.com slash out of the box podcast. So you can find us there and click on the follow button. We don't have as many followers on um, SoundCloud as on Stitcher and iTunes. So we love new followers. And if you really, really like the podcast, you can click on the subscribe button on iTunes. And that also helps us out quite a bit. Um, I am so excited to be here today with a very special guest. She has a new book out called Dollars and Sex, and she is a professor of economics at the Vancouver School of Economics at the University of British Columbia, um, also launching the online knowledge forum Big Think, which was named the number one news and information website by Time Magazine in 2011. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Marina Adjade. Marina, how are you? I'm terrific. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. Um, so you have a new book out, Dollars and Sex, which talks about how it looks at relationships and dating through an economics perspective. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I'm an unusual economist, uh, unlike other economists who talk about things like you know, um, interest rates and exchange rates and whether or not the economy is growing. I look at personal relationships and, and, and look into how economics can inform us about the decisions we make in those relationships. But in a way, don't you think that's so much more important? Because a lot of those facts and figures that you were talking about in traditional economics, they're all very theoretical, where this is actually applied to people's everyday lives. Yeah, and that's actually why I started doing this topic. I used to be that kind of economist. I used to be a macroeconomist, and I used to teach classes on macroeconomics, and I used to sit out and look at my students with their very bored faces. They're like falling asleep in class. (laughs) Explaining to them why the exchange rate is adjusting. Um, And I, I, I really wanted to find a way to convey my enthusiasm for economics to my students. And so... This is exactly why I started doing this is I want I started teaching a course on the economics of sex and love because I thought it was so important and I thought that it was a really great way to get students to apply economics to their own lives and it does apply to their own lives and and you can barely um, go online and read an article or pick up a newspaper and read an article without seeing examples of how economics is playing out in our personal relationships. And your class was such a huge success you offered it was it the first time 2009? Yeah. Something like, geez, it's hard to believe it's been that long ago, but yes. And it was like booked out, everyone wanted in, right? <laughs> yeah, it was actually really funny because this doesn't happen very often in uh, university courses, but the week before um, the course started, somebody in the media picked it up. And so it was actually in the, the Sunday Times in the UK and a Russian newspaper call- covered it, a Japanese newspaper covered it. So by the time the course actually started, people on campus were quite excited. And I had people sitting on the floors. And it was a big room. We had 200 students anyway. But they were sitting down the stairs, uh, all there checking out to see what we were going to be talking about in this crazy new course. Well, it definitely sounds very, very interesting. Now, you talk about a lot of interesting things in the book. Um, I read a little bit of it. Unfortunately, I didn't get to finish it um, before our interview. But um, there, there are certain things that are are linked, uh, like you talk about promiscuity and how women kind of don't have the, be- um, not the benefit, but there's, I, how, how did you word it? There's no purpose, I guess, since education for women is now higher? 
to protect yeah, their to it, protect their virginity or protect that that in a from an economic point of view. Yeah, well, you know the the whole stuff on promiscuity is really interesting, and it's become even more interesting since I finished writing the book because last year I can't remember when when it was. It would have been in February at some point in time. Um, an organization um, uh, that's affiliated with the uh, University of um, Texas um, put out a video called "The Economics of Sex and Love." And it was really interesting because they were taking economic theories and applying them to the the topic of promiscuity, um, but they weren't doing it in a way that I agree with or actually any other economists agree with. What they were arguing there is that you know the 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 market for casual sex there are buyers and sellers, um, but the men are all the buyers and the women are all the sellers. And what they're arguing is that well, women don't like sex as much as men. I have no idea why they think this. Um, <laughs> compensated to encourage them to engage in this activity that they don't really enjoy. And so um, when when societies became more promi- promiscuous and women uh, were made themselves more available to men, the price that women could get for sex de- decreased. And, and so things like not being able to get somebody to marry you or that level of commitment. And so they were arguing that what we really need is for women to band together and withhold sex from men, return to the good old days. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, that would drive up the price of sex, and before you know it, every woman, we'd all have white picket fences, which is what we really want, other than <laughs> the sex life. Um, and it was really, it was really interesting. In fact, I'm doing this, this, this exact topic with. I teach a big first year class at the moment. I'm doing exactly this video tomorrow in class, so it's been on my mind. Um, and it is an interesting story because they're using this very kind of rudimentary understanding of economics, but without properly applying economics. Because anybody who properly applies economics knows that you can't have millions of women banding together to withhold sex. It's never going to work because there's always going to be somebody who's going to say, oh, I don't care about this female you know, consortium. It's like the OPEC oil. <laughs> the OPEC oil of women. <laughs> getting together and, and reducing the supply of oil. It's just never going to work. But it's an interesting story, and it's, and it's a cool it's it's cool that I'm, we're seeing these economic principles being applied. In this case, they're not pro- applied properly, but at least it encourages us to have these conversations. So I did talk a bit about promiscuity in the book. So what is so what is campaign. so what is your you're saying you're just dis- you disagree with this um, theory that you know with the supply and demand. What 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 is your idea on it? Just so, for the listeners who haven't read the book or don't know about it. Well, I I, I would agree actually that. Um, the increase in promiscuity is reducing marriage rates. I think that that makes a lot of sense. If you're 19 and there's zero chance of you getting laid if you don't get married, uh, sure, you're going to be anxious to rush into getting married. And, and so it's going to reduce marriage rates because it will postpone the age at which people get married. I mean, people are happy to get married when they're 30 now because they can have you know sexual relationships in their 20s. So that's probably true. I mean, I disagree with them that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that people marrying a little later is is a good thing because the, those marriages are generally happier and they last longer. The part I disagree with is the idea that women should band together or can even band together um and withhold sex in order to um into in order to return to some 1950s ideal that just no longer exists because I just don't think it would possibly work. To to have a, a female no no um, sex pact right <laughs> yeah and the, the, the thing is of course the in order for the female no sex pact to work the only it's like the okay so OPEC oil producing countries 
you know, we all know they got together in the 1970s, they reduced the supply of oil, and that drove the price of oil up. And the only way they could do that is by having a mechanism for punishing people who deviated, right? So the country that produced more oil than they said they were going to produce, they had a mechanism for punishing them. It's the same thing with this, the economics of sex story, is that the only way it would work is if you punished women who deviated. And, and so basically what they're advocating for is slut shaming um, on a grand scale. And I'm I don't think anybody wants to think wants to think of that as a, a mechanism for you know improving or sees it as a way of improving social norms. Um, I certainly don't, and, and I can't see any alternative to that. I actually wrote them and said to them, "It seems to me that you're advocating for slut shaming here." And <laughs> well, that's one possibility, but there are other possibilities. And so I wrote them again and said, "What exactly are the other possibilities?" To which I got no response. You know, well, and and we all know that doesn't work because during um, some of the past OPEC, you know, um, when they were trying to control the flow and sell of oil, a lot of countries did sell kind of under the table sure. when they were told not to, just when they were trying to do supply and demand. So prices are high. Why would you not sell? Right? I mean, that's the thing is that it's if these 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 um, consortiums that try to restrict uh, quantity, increase prices, they don't work when there's two or three or four countries or firms, how is it possibly going to work when you have millions of women? It's just not possible, right? Uh, the market just doesn't operate like that. And it's just, it's just a strange argument. And it's just such a misapplication of the theory. Actually, my personally, I don't really, you know, and, and I, my views on this have evolved since I wrote the book. Um, when I wrote the book, I was more willing to think about supply and demand. But I think I'm moving away from that. And I'm starting to think about the markets for sex as more like barter economies. Mm -hmm. You know, in a barter economy, you, you have people trade goods for goods or services for services um, because they don't have money to trade. Usually that's the way. Um, you know, the markets for sex are very similar to that in that we're not necessarily buyers and sellers um, or, you know, really what we all are is we're all buyers and we're all sellers. And so that makes for an interesting market because when I want to engage in trade, I have to find somebody who is buying what I have to sell and is selling what I want to buy. And that's one of the reasons why these markets are so difficult. It's one of the reasons why it's so hard to find somebody, you know, to marry um, and why the search takes so long is because we all have the set of requirements that we want and, you know, we have to find somebody who meets those requirements um, and then we have that person also has to be looking for what we have to offer. So that makes for a difficult market. But it, it's also more interesting to think about it that way, right? It's more interesting than thinking that it's like a market for coffee or a market for used cars. It's really nothing like that. Because it's a lot more complicated. Well, the car doesn't have to want you back, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> coffee does not, you know, need to feel that you're going to fulfill them. None of that is an issue in, in regular markets, but it is in markets for sex and love. And so I think it's a nice way to think about it as a barter economy. So what was the most interesting or maybe contradictory thing that you learned in your research when you were applying economics to sex and relationships that you maybe had a misconception about or thought differently, but the numbers show something else? Oh, my gosh. There's so many things, you know, over the, the year. I wrote the book when I was living in France. I went to France, and that's all I did was write this book. And it was such a journey. You know, it was it was a journey for me because when I set out, I, I already had a lot of information. I've been writing my blog for years. I've been teaching the course for years. I guess so part of my brain thought that I would just sit down and hammer out this book. But I think that every day that I learned something new, um, about human behavior, about the way that people negotiate their relationships, about the way what makes for a successful relationship. 
Um, but also just see, looking at how much things have changed over time. Like, you know, for example, one of the things, we like to make a lot of assumptions about what women are looking for. And what we generally assume is that what women are looking for is that they're looking for somebody who has more education than them, and they're looking for somebody who earns a better income. And be because historically that was true. But when you look at the numbers, that's just changing so remarkably quickly, right? I mean, we have so many more educated women now. Um, you know, for example, in the U.S., if you look at women between the ages of 25 and 45, which we think about as prime marrying years, for every um, 100 men who have a university degree, there's 125 women in that group. And so it can't possibly be true that all the women are, are marrying educated men. Um, and so you might think, well, maybe these women are, are kind of lowering their expectations or they're compromising or they're just not getting the, what they want. And I actually don't think that's true. And the more I look at the data, I don't think that's true. What I think women are doing is looking for other things, right? Women, for example, many educated women are now marrying younger men, right? Men who are actually significantly younger than them, like five to ten years younger than them. And I guess the idea is, you know, I, I, have, I have income, um, I can support myself and give myself the lifestyle. What I really want is a man who's, you know, energetic and wants to do lots of things with me. And so they're looking for younger men. That's kind of surprising. And it's and it, the the numbers have, have increased so remarkably in the last ten years. It's just hard to fathom. I mean, um, from the data from the UK, it's almost in the double digits now for women who are in their forties and getting married who have university degrees. Something like sixteen percent of them are marrying men who are significantly younger than themselves. So I find that interesting. I think that it's it's interesting that how much we're changing our expectations of relationships over a fairly short period of time and largely in response to economic factors. Now, does that data only apply to the developed world? Is it is it different in the, the world and developing world? Yeah. So, it's you know, it's always interesting to look at the developing world. Um, and, you know, when I started off my, my academic life, I was actually an economic historian. Uh, and I've always had interest in history and how things have changed over time. And you see that playing out in the book. Like I talk about the history of promiscuity, talk about the history of marriage, because it interests me how society changes, because I think it helps us and think about how society is going to change in the future. And when we look at the, the developing world, it's, very, it's, it's a lot more similar to the way that we were historically, right? Maybe um, like 50 years ago or, or just in general? In well, the history I'd, say more, of I'd say more than 50 years ago. I, I would say something close to two, like 100 or 120 years ago. You know, where you have uh, women largely not employed in the, um, the wage workforce, very, very low levels of education, levels of education that we haven't seen in North America in 100 years. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're behind us in that sense, um, which, it, you know, helps us to understand what can happen um, to move things forward, right? You know, for example, I, I think that there's a lot of consensus that we'd like to see fertility rates fall in, the, in many developing countries, because those countries would be a lot better off if they could reduce their fertility rates in terms of uh, um, standards of living for everybody, now, well, we saw our, our fertility rates falling, started falling in North America 200 years ago. And uh, 200 years ago, the, the birth rate here was like seven women per child. Um, by the time you get to the 1930s, it's down to actually for, for um, the U.S., the birth rate in the 1930s is exactly the same as what it is now. So we saw that happen, and we know why it happened. And so we can look at the developing world today, and we can say, well, you know, if some of these countries just have been possibly low a high fertility rates, this is what we need to do. We need to educate women and give women opportunities in the workforce because that will encourage them to have uh, fewer children 
Um, we need to, uh, you know, give women opportunities to control their fertility of all the things that we've seen happen. Uh, so it's interesting to look at the intersection between the history and the developing world. And I find it infinitely fascinating. Where do you think is the future? You know, you know, we're using this data to predict, like you said, what what's going to go on in the developing third world. Where do you think the future of the de developing world as far as economics and sex is going? Well, you know, it, it's so it's it's difficult to make predictions. You know, for you to ask people 50 years ago about what was going to happen um, in some of the poorest countries in the world, I think pretty every, every economist you would have talked to would have foreseen uh, a much better future than they're experiencing now. The, you know, development uh, is an incredibly complicated in terms of industrialization, or just in terms yeah, of in terms of industrialization, and a lot of it, uh, especially in African countries, is you know the we. When, when colonization ended, which wasn't even that long ago, right? We're talking in the 1960s um, and even later for some countries. People, countries were just left behind with you know, very poor structures for government. And it's very difficult to change structures for government quickly. And so that's what really needs to happen in those countries before they can see any real development. And, and nobody really knows um, how to do that. But we can make small differences. You know, uh, for example... Um, uh, creating new laws that uh, protect children from marriage. We know that children, when you have child marriage and you have girls married at a really young age, it just doesn't bode well for the economy as a whole or, or for people as a whole. Um, you know, uh, getting rid of polygamy would be very good in many of these countries, or at least try to reduce polygamy, um, because polygamy in the in the it used to be good for children in the past, but now. It's it's those children suffer in those families. Um, you know, educating women. Why why was it good in in the past? You know, it's, it's a really that's a really interesting story because of course, historically, if you're in a kind of largely agricultural society, right, and so you're you're farmers, you're subsistence farmers, children in polygamous families were better off because they had multiple caregivers, and each one of those caregivers could specialize in a job, right. So one mother would be responsible for preparing food. The other mother could be responsible for taking care of children. Maybe a third mother, you know, um, does vegetable um, uh, growing. So it's kind of like a business, right? So it's, a, it's a business <laughs> in which people specialize, right? So they're specializing in their tasks. And when they specialize in their tasks, everybody is a little bit more productive, right? Because you get to divide labor. Economists get very excited about this sort of thing. It's actually a little bit like trade, right? So if I, you have two countries, one that is good at producing one thing, maybe they have a lot of labor, and you have another country that is very good at producing another thing, maybe they have a lot of capital, then those countries should in, engage in trade where each one's specializing in what they're good at. It's true within the household as well. It's true in polygamous households. It's true in, in any households. It's true in same-sex households. Um, that Those households are more productive when people specialize in the tasks at which they're most efficient. And so there was a lot of efficiency traditionally in polygamous families. And so children historically have been better off in polygamous households. But it's less true now because now so much of children's well-being um, is tied to income because income makes it possible to you know, pay for good health care, to pay for good education. And income in polygamous households is, is generally in short supply because there's generally so many children and wives that it has to be shared over. And so that's what's making children worse off today. So it's a supply and demand issue again. Yeah, well, yeah. There's, it, a, there's a short supply of education. Well, there's a short supply of funds to pay for education, right? We, we have a tendency to forget that in, we're, because we're so lucky, we, um, 
in, in you know in North America where we don't have to pay for elementary education, but this is not true in a lot of uh, develop, developing countries where people are still having to pay for elementary education for their children. And so polygamous families are just far less likely to, to pay for that, and especially for their daughters. And so then it gets into a cycle, right? Better education, there's always far less polygamy, um, but in order for people to become better educated, there has to be money to pay for it. So what I'm hearing is better education for women equals better economic situations for countries equals all around good stuff. <laughs> it's all good stuff. It all hinges around female education. You it know, does. And, and I, I know Oprah talked about this when she started her school for girls in Africa. Cause everyone said, well, why don't why did you choose a school for girls? Why didn't you choose, you know, um, a co-ed school? And she said, well, when you transform women, you transform the community and you transform the world. You know, it's funny, it, it, a lot of Americans don't realize this, but, um, you know, they were the, the U.S. was the world leader in, in education, in, in high school education. So, you know, back when the, when the rest of Europe and stuff didn't start really offering um, high school education until the 1920s and the 1930s, the U.S. had universal high school education as early as like the 1880s. And since the very beginning, Women have been better educated than U.S. In, than than men in the U.S. in terms of high school education, and it made a big difference over time. The fact that girls could go to high school, complete high school, and that so many of them did, even really early in in the country's history, uh, because it gives women control over their own lives. It gives them options, and when they have options, even when they're, you know, um, stayed at home and taking care of children, when they have options to support themselves, it gives them far more control over their own lives. And when women have more control over their own lives, their children do better. And that's because the sad reality is that when mothers decide how money is spent, they're far more likely to spend it on children than fathers are. Um, I want to talk about some of the case studies that you use in the book, Jane, you know, in the opening and other people. Are, are all of these based on 100% um, factual or are these based on maybe a caricature of several women that you've met or other people that you've met that you have done case studies on or were these actual real live people okay so 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 all the stories of jane are about me oh (laughs) okay (laughs) i did not know that totally out myself on that Uh, (laughs) jane has had a very interesting life i think this is part of the reason why i I find this topic so fascinating is because so many of these things um have played out in my own life so that's me and then all of the other some of the stories are actually about my daughter okay uh, (laughs) uh and then the other stories are have been pieced together from um stories that people tell me there's something about me uh, I cannot get on an airplane without the person sitting next to me telling me their life story. People just <laughs> okay. want to tell me this stuff. Uh, even before they know what I do, it's just it's just fascinating how much information people will share. And so some of it is is composite from other stories um, that I've been told. Okay, so so it's all true. It's not like it's some case true. studies and you're changing names and making, you know, other... Uh, everything is basically tr- true real life stuff. It's all true real life stuff, yeah. Because sometimes people will, you know, they'll base, I, I mean, obviously your book is not a work of fiction. It's a nonfiction book. But sometimes people will have stories within or examples and they'll base it on kind of, uh, you know, maybe it, the person will be named Jane and it'll be based on two or three different women. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, you know, it's it, one of the, um, when I started writing the book, one of my favorite books of um, all time 
is uh, Robin Baker's Sperm Wars. I don't know if you've ever read it. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's such a good book. It's like academic porn. Like you'll okay. like have a cold shower after you've been reading it for a while. And Sperm Wars, that's it's what it's called? so good. It's so so Sperm Wars is based on it's it's all about evolutionary biology and it explains why it's explaining a variety of human behaviors from an evolutionary perspective. But every single chapter starts with a fictional component. And it's quite okay. racy. Like remarkably racy and I would love to have done something like that but I just uh well, first of all, it's it's much harder to do. It's easier to do when you're an evolutionary biologist and you're talking about sperm right off the bat. It is <laughs> but I I started um, knowing that I wanted to have this fictional component to it, and I think when I started, I think my my idea was to do more like what Robert Baker does and just tell purely fictional stories. But you know, in some respect, books write themselves, um, and so as I was writing those stories. They just never were fictional. They all um, just came from true stories. I might regret okay. having told you that I was Jane. but <laughs> Don't regret it! You know, the whole section about why my marriage ended, sometimes I feel like just printing that off and mailing it to my ex-husband. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So the secret is revealed. You know, um, you've heard it here for the first time. <laughs> for the first time on Out of the Box podcast, Marina Ad Jane outing herself as the antagon- pr- protagonist, right? Protagonist <laughs> of her own book. Um, <laughs> so, is there a race component um, within some of the stuff that you're talking about? Where you know, if someone, I, I know, obviously, social, economic, and 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 in this country, usually, if you're black or Latino, then you're tied to more poor economic conditions in this country. Do you, did, you, did you see that at all in your research? Yeah, you know, that's, the- that's one of the more interesting parts about the research. It, it's interesting because when, you, when you know, I started thinking about these ideas, um, the, I think the temptation is to stay away from the notion of race uh, because you want to be careful about making generalizations about people's behavior based on race, of course, that should go without saying. Um, and so you kind of want to avoid it, but it's almost impossible to avoid and it's not even, it's not very honest um, to avoid because um, different groups of people face different choices and entirely different environments. And so because of that, they have different outcomes. And some of those outcomes are associated with very, very real costs. And to ignore the, the element of race, I think, does a disservice uh, to those groups of people. So the most obvious one is just the unbelievably low uh, marriage rate of African-American women um, relative to uh, women of all other racial groups and trying to explain that and think about that uh, within economic framework I think is is really insightful because it, it explains why there's such a low marriage rate and then at the same time explains why the out of uh, marriage birth rate is also so high right um, and so they, they it makes for an interesting perspective when you think about it in terms of the economics and particularly when you think about um, the markets on which those women are looking for relationships so um, I I know the reason because I read that part, but um, do you mind sharing with the the listeners? Sure, and it, and I don't even think there's just one only one reason. Um, but I think that the 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 oh the thing is that this racial the gap that you get in marriages really is an American story, right? Um, we just don't see it in Canada where I live and in other places. You don't see the big racial gap in marriages, and so one of the um, a kind of most obvious explanations is just the high incarceration rate of young black men 
uh, relative to men in other groups, right? You, the U.S. incarceration rate is seven times higher than it is in Canada on per capita basis, and ours isn't even particularly low. Um, it, well, we have the highest incarceration rate in general in the entire in world, the entire, which is insane. <laughs> you are number one. It's we are. America is number one in prisons. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, uh, and, and the thing is that, and it's your number one, and the, and the prison population is largely made up of um, young black men, right? The, the probability of a young black man being incarcerated at some point in his lifetime is, is shockingly high. Um, I don't want to get into the, the reasons why. Actually, one of my colleagues here, um, the Vancouver School of Economics, that's all the research she does, is looking at that topic, and it's, and it's interesting, and it's a discussion in itself. Um, however, it really uh, influences the marriage markets, right? Um, and it influences the marriage markets because it creates a shortage of men, not just when those men are incarcerated, you know, they're totally off the marriage market in general. Although I do have a friend who, who married somebody while he was in prison, so it's not totally out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> she had four children with him before she was released. Oh, my gosh. I know. I can't believe that. <laughs> um, and then, uh, but the, it's not just that. It's just that it, and because, because incarceration carries a lifelong penalty from, for people in terms of... Uh, because it's hard to get jobs and they have that on the record. Deals, yeah. You know, it, it, it makes it, it, it reduces the supply because when they're not on the market, but then it reduces the supply of men who have the uh, capability of getting employment that they, they can use to support a family. And that, you know, in any socioeconomic group, that's going to reduce uh, marriage rates um, because a lot of women who are already supporting children, uh, you know, find themselves married to a man who is unemployed or underemployed becomes very difficult and it just creates for stressful marriages. Um, and so, so for these reasons, um, you know, there's a shortage of men. And what, what, what I find really interesting about this from an economist is that none of this should really matter. Um, and the reason why it shouldn't matter, um, is because of course, black women are not confined to marrying black men, right? You know, they can marry men of any uh, other group that they want. Um, and then there's other studies that have been done by economists that actually look at the propensity for um, interracial marriage. There's a higher percentage of black men marrying outside of their race than black women. Yeah, and you know what's interesting about yeah. that is that um, the, the main driver of this, um, and we know this because we do experiments that are uh, speed dating trials and, and other types of experiments. Uh, it's the way the speed dating trials work is you probably know what speed dating is. You you come to a social uh, uh, engagement, there's a bunch of single people, you spend two or three minutes talking to each one of them, and then at the end of the night you write a list of names of, of people that you'd like to have your contact information shared with. Um, and so economists have done these trials to try to separate out same-race preferences in marriage. Um, because, you know, if I see a black man that's married to a white woman, it doesn't really tell me anything about same-race preferences. Um, and what's really interesting is when they, they do those trials, um, the, the group of people who is most discerning about the race of their partner is black women. Um, they have a much higher same race preference than does any other group of, of women. Other groups of women have small same race preferences. And then interestingly, Asian women um, actually have a preference to marry outside of their own race. I know I have heard that and I am married outside of my race and I just want to know why is that? You know, everybody has preferences, you know, uh, 
But as a whole, as a whole culture, I mean, that's just crazy. It's, that it's, it really, seems to be a trend really with certain Thirty-five percent um, of of marriages of Chinese women in the U.S. are to non-Asian men. Thirty-five percent. It's a lot. Uh, so that that is interesting in and of itself. And that, you know, those type of preferences, I, I I would be lying if I could say that as an economist, I have an explanation for that because I can't explain <laughs> I can't explain everything. Uh, <laughs> this, you know, and then so then getting back to the story about low marriage rates in the in um, the U.S. is that so you've got two things going on. One is the the high incarceration rates and the low employability um, of men who have a criminal record tied together with this same race preference, and that's really what's driving it. If 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 black women didn't have the same race preference, if they you know if they wanted to marry Asian men, they might be a lot more successful, right? But um, uh, that's really what drives that that market, and then it creates interesting. You know, there's there's a, some actually good side effects f- that comes from it, right? Because first, from inter- from interracial well, marriage. I mean, mean, interracial marriage. I mean, there's lots of good things that come from interracial marriage, but genetic diversity, genetic diversity, <laughs> genetic diversity is, is always good. Um, but the uh, um, because of the incarceration rate, so specifically. They, they have encouraged uh, black women to become better educated. This is why we see such high education rates among black women. And um, because women, um, when they look forward in their lives, um, they don't necessarily see a future in which they're going to be married to somebody or be married to somebody who has a higher income than themselves. And so they're forced to in, invest in their own education. They're forced to spend more time in the workforce. And so there are some positive effects from that in terms of the women and the, the women are responding in a way uh, that improves, you know, their own standards of living. Um, but, you know, it comes at a cost because there's a lot of benefits to being married. And we have a lot of people who, you know, of course, not everybody has to be married. I'm not married. I'm quite happily not married. But, you know, for people who want to be married and see benefits to that, uh, I think it's really unfortunate to be on a market where you can't find someone. Yes. And... um now, does cohabilitating affect marriage and, and, and the financial? I know a lot of people now are cohabilitating and just living together for, you know, endless amounts of time. And a lot of millennials, you know, the statistics are that millennials are, are getting married less and less and, and or waiting or seeing that there's less, I guess, reason to get married. I'm not sure if that was in your book or if I just read I that. Know, I mean, this is true. It's in, what's interesting about, um, about that is that for a long time, People believed that cohabitation was just bad for marriage. You know, this was this overriding message that we were hearing saying, no, you know, you shouldn't live together before you get married because people who live together before they get married are more likely to end up divorced if they do eventually marry because they don't take commitment seriously. Now we're finding and we're looking at the evidence that this is just not true. I mean, this is all, you know, you have to use pr- proper statistical techniques to separate these things out. I mean, the main thing that messes this whole thing up is that people who um, uh, um, are very tied to, to their church, to Christianity, are far less likely to cohabitate. And they are also um, uh, more likely to stay married if they get married because they, they have lower divorce rates. And so it makes it look like not cohabitating is tied to lower divorce rates. Um, but that's not really true. Okay, So people who co- you're not doing any harm to your future marriage prospects by living together. Uh, and so I think that that um, 
you know, the next generation. Actually, you know what? It's not even the next generation. I'm finding that a lot of older women, women who are in their 50s and 60s, they're also not marrying. So if you, you if you are married and you're divorced, um, that generation... Not remarrying. Yeah, so they're not or, remarrying. Or if they've remained single, they're not marrying. A lot of uh, old pe- older people are also choosing to live together um, and avoiding... You know the 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 costs um, of getting married and the potential costs of getting divorced, and just keeping their lives a little bit simpler. So we're seeing this on the rise everywhere. So Dr. Adshade, everyone is saying that it doesn't hurt you, ladies, to move in with your guy. And I actually advocate for it because I was in a relationship previously before I was with my husband. And as soon as I moved in with the guy, he totally changed personalities. So I think it's a good thing to test out the water before you're going to be living with someone for 40, 50 plus years or maybe a lifetime. I can't (laughs) imagine. I mean, it'd be like driving a car, buying a car without taking it for a test drive. Why would you do that? I don't know. I think a lot of women want to want the mystique of kind of like, um, or, you know, and like you said, it's a lot of cultural misconceptions or misnomers. And, and uh, but I definitely wanted to live with my husband at least six months before we got married, because I wanted to see what his habits were, you know, am I gonna? Can I can I live with this guy? That's, I think, really important. I think it is. I think that what people maybe want to avoid is the um, tendency to think, there are relationships, people who are living together, our relationship isn't going very well. Perhaps if we get married, it'll fix this problem. And I think that there are people who do that, but we're smarter than that, right? Um, yeah, that sounds kind of like the, our marriage isn't going well. Let's have a couple yeah. kids. <laughs> people, believe it or not, do make these decisions. Um, if, you know, while we're advocating for things, can I just advocate for prenuptial agreements? Okay, you know, sure. <laughs> you know, as an economist, I think of marriage as a contract. By the way, I don't know if you actually got to the part of my book where I have my economic marriage vows. Um, they're coldly cynical, but I like them. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the what it's interesting um, that we all know that marriage is a contract. I think that we know in our hearts that you know there's the the dress and the party and the flowers and the photographer but really what you're doing is you're signing a contract that should be clear to people since you do at some point in this service sign the contract right it's a legal contract and in some states you can get really screwed over pardon my french if you're you know um like in a a communal um what is it called where person gets 50 50 and you're the woman in america who is making more money and has higher education which is highly likely with the statistics (laughs) yes yes when i was in france i met several women who's where they were american women they had good educations they were earning good money and they married french uh i'm doing air quotes here but you can't see it artists (laughs) they married really hot french men who did nothing um and then they ended up getting divorced from them and ended up paying like spousal support for the remainder of their lives because they were earning so much and their partner was earning nothing and it's you got to be really careful when you make these decisions but you know the thing so so it is a contract and i think that it's healthy to think about it as a contract and actually write a contract before you get married Um, because the state thinks you've talked about these things right society thinks you've talked about these things and if you don't actually talk about them you're really heading yourself down a, a very dangerous path it's best to know in advance, um, you know, the way that you think your marriage is going to play out, um, you know, you just need to set out parameters and, and, and you know, set up ways of, of dealing with situations. You know, one of the, the things, it, actually, it, we, would, we go back and talk for a second again about um, developing countries. 
is that a lot of developing countries where you're paying, especially in Africa, where people pay a bride price, it's like the opposite of a dowry. So um, a man gets married, he pays. So a dowry is, is for those of you who don't know, is when the groom offers, uh, you know, money, gifts, farm animals, houses, land, or whatever for the woman, right? And no, you're saying the it's dowry the is when the woman's family gives the man's family money. That's what you have predominantly in India. Oh, so I had, I had it. And then the bride okay. price is when the man pays the woman's family. And what's interesting is that there's some African countries where um, the bride price is actually refundable if the woman cheats. <laughs> Right. (laughs) So if you get married and you pay, you give the family two goats and your wife has a sexual relationship with somebody else, um, the husband can go back and demand his goats back, right? (laughs) Um, It's a really interesting arrangement. And and you asked me before what surprises me. This is one of the things that interests me is that when they have these arrangements, um, women are far less likely to cheat in their marriages because their families will be punished financially. But men are actually more likely to cheat. And uh, and why is that? Because they have this like, um, well, they don't have to pay. They don't have to pay. Like, they, they can get a And, you know, I what? think that in many relationships, we have uh, what we might call a tit for tat relationship where um, if you cheat, I'm going to cheat too, right? And so you have a way of, of, of saying, you know, in advance, this is, I'm, you, if you don't want me to cheat, the best thing you should do is not cheat, right? Um, and then in these bride mm-hmm. price arrangements, it's impossible for the woman to retaliate with cheating if her husband cheats. And so this frees men up to have higher levels of infidelity. Because he does, the woman doesn't want to bring shame on her family by yes. having to return yeah. the bride price. So she's the only one who's punished in the arrangement. Well, okay, so let's go back to prenuptial agreements. You know, a lot of, of couples write prenuptial agreements that talk about infidelity. Um, and they particularly talk about infidelity by women in cases where the men have a lot of money. So, for example, you might write in a prenuptial agreement um, that she gets half of his estate. But if she cheats in the marriage, she, she gets no money, Right. Um, and that would mm-hmm. make sense when the man has lots of, of income. But if you're a woman and you're thinking about entering into one of these arrangements, you should know that that increases the chance of your husband cheating, and uh, that that should be in the uh, that should be somehow in the contract. Now it's much harder for women, with especially if they're not working and they have lower incomes, you know, to find ways of of writing a contract that prevents his infidelity. But they should at least think about it. Um. So what are some of so that is an important thing to put into the prenuptial agreement. What are some other tips you would have for women? Because I think a lot of times when we think about marriage, you talked about the dress, you talked about the ceremony and the and the cake and everything. And I think a lot of times women we romanticize it a little bit more. You know, maybe that's a stereotype. I don't know. And and so you're saying to look at it as what it is and protect yourself. Just in you, you case. know, actually, men are, are, are far more hopelessly romantic than women are. <laughs> When it comes to when well, it comes you know, to marriage contracts, in terms of marriage contracts, but, you know, <laughs> men are far more likely to believe in love at first sight, and men are far more likely to believe in soulmates than women are. So the the evidence seems oh to gosh. suggest that men are actually a little bit, women are actually a little bit more grounded uh, relationships <laughs> than men are. But um, you know, lots of things. You know, for example, I'm so I. You know, I was living with my ex-husband before we got married. Uh, I really wanted to have children. He was dragging his heels on that. Um, we talked about it, and we he said, well, if we're going to have children, we should get married. And so that's why we got married, right? Um, 
Mm-hmm. And then we got married, and I'm like, you know, great, impregnate me. And um, <laughs> he said, oh, I don't mean now. I mean at some time in the future. And uh, so there's a lot of conflict around that. And then I had my daughter, and as soon as she was born, he said, no more children. Now, that was something mm-hmm. that we should have had in a contract. I, I think that that sounds, you know, crazy. You would you would have that in a contract. But I actually think that writing things, talking about things and writing them down, I think is very, very useful for people in advance of relationships. Where are you going to live? You know, uh, if, if somebody gets a new job, um, are you going to be forced to follow them to their job? Or how is that going to work exactly? A lot of big decisions get made. Um, and that people don't talk about in advance. We don't before talk they about get them in advance. And one of the things too that you know is that um, a lot of the way that bargaining power is distributed in, in marriages. So you know, we talk about bargaining power. You can actually just define it this way: is that if you have two people and they have a conflict over anything, you know, whether or not it's going to be whether or not you're going to have another child or where you're going to go on your holiday next year. Your bargaining power is the probability that you're going to win any one particular disagreement. And bargaining power is very closely tied to income. Um, And so what I think that many women don't realize when they get married is that if you get married and um, you have a couple of children, you decide as a couple that you're you're going to, you know, reduce your work time to part-time, you're going to opt out of the workforce altogether, women don't necessarily realize how much that's going to erode away their bargaining power. You know, their decisions to make very simple things like where you're going to live. You know, a woman who's a stay-at-home mom, when her husband gets a job in another city, it's very difficult for her to to say no to that. Uh, Is it just a feeling of entitlement with the with the working spouse? Well, you know, I, think, it- I mean, I, I think it comes directly from what people's outside options are, right? You know, a woman who's working um, and his ability to support herself and ability to support her children has more outside options. She has a threat point, right? I'm not saying that, you know, every day you're going to have, he's going to say, let's go to Cabo for Christmas, and she's going to say, screw you, I can support myself. But it's there implicitly <laughs> in the relationship, right? Um, and I, money, money is, is power. power. It's, it's true in relationships as well. And I think that it's really, really good to have these conversations, you know, not even just before you get married, but at every step of the way. You know, if you, if a woman's going to opt out of the workforce, or if men, you know, men will opt out of the workforce as well to take care of children, and it goes both ways, um, you know, you need to have conversations about what the arrangements are going to be, so that you don't find yourself in a position where things are happening in your life that you do not like, because that doesn't make that just leads to general unhappiness for everybody, um, and it's not going to help relationships last in the long run. And well, let's we're talking about money and and marriage, and and let's talk about. Um, finance in marriage because you know supposedly I don't know because you've you've corrected some of my statistics and I'm glad you have because uh, you know they're misconceptions if I if I'm saying something that is a misconception I want you to correct me and uh, you know I have heard that money and finance is the number one reason for divorce and so people need to talk about this and I I know when I got married my husband was very sheepish to talk about finances in the beginning I said all right let's I mean we probably should have had the conversation before but now we're on the same page but I said hey let's talk about our financial situation how we're going to save money how we're going to invest how we're going to run the household and 
in his family growing up, they just didn't talk about that stuff. And it was like a shocker to him. You know, my family, we didn't talk about it either, either, which is why I wanted to talk about it because my parents had endless arguments over finances and money. And, and it's a very important topic. Don't you find that even when you're dating that you'd need to talk about money? You know, I, I find this is so, I find this really interesting back in, back in, you know, the day, um, you wouldn't necessarily have conversations, but I know that, you know, I'm seeing somebody now and we have constantly have conversations about money because uh, we don't just go through our relationship assuming that he's going to pay for things, right? Um, so we, so, so mm-hmm. we're kind of in a, a state of the world where even before you're married, people have to have conversations about money. You know, I have a friend who's recently been having some conflict um, with his girlfriend because they agreed to split the price of a trip, but then when they went on the trip, he paid for everything, so he wasn't very happy about that. Um, so we do, we all need to have conversations about money, and we all need to have a healthier attitude uh, in talking about uh, money. We're worse at talking about money than we are talking about sex. Actually, as a society, we're quite happy to sit around and talk about sex, but God forbid that we talk. We should talk about money. So I think that this is this is true. And you know, you know, it's, it's, you didn't have the conversation before you got married, but that's fine because I think that you constantly have to have these conversations over and over and over again as you move through your life because circumstances change. I mean, one of these days you two will be deciding, thing, making things about whether or not you're going to retire and who's going to pay the bills and all of these money conversations, they, they have to continue. And I think that you're right. I mean, is it the number one reason for, for divorces? I mean, it's really hard to, to pin that down. Um, it's not infidelity, which I know that everybody thinks it is, but it's not. Um, Supposedly, it's finance infidelity yeah, is like third or something. I forgot what's second. You know, when was. I was writing the book, I have a whole chapter on infidelity, and so I searched very, very hard for some concrete evidence that there's any relationship between infidelity and divorce, and I could find absolutely none. None. There is no evidence that infidelity causes divorce. There is plenty of evidence that unhappy marriages cause infidelity. Uh, that's so, true. <laughs> you, know, you might want to say that the, your marriage ended because she cheated or because he cheated, but but it, it's you know, and that might sometimes that's more of a result, like a, a symptom, a than, symptom an actual than anything cause. else. Yeah. So um, another thing, you know, uh, that people like to say is the internet. If you actually Google, I love the Google Complete where you start typing something and Google finishes the question for you. Uh, and, and, and so if you start, start typing in why people get divorced, the internet comes up all the time, right? The internet's to blame. You know, Ashley Madison, the guy who runs that website, is personally responsible for divorce. Uh, <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, Ashley Madison is a website where you can find people who yes. are looking to cheat. It's a, it's a, we, we call that on-the-job search. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, it, it's interesting because... Um, the internet is not responsible for marriages ending as much as we want to blame that. Uh, it's not, I mean, infidelity is in decline. It's not in, in increasing since the internet came along. Divorce rates have been in decline ever since. In fact, divorce rates in the U.S. have been falling every year that you've had access to online dating. Um, so there's just no reason to believe that the internet is causing people to cheat and that's causing marriages to fail. It's much more likely that financial stress is, is and, and conflict over how often people should have sex. Those are the type of things that causes marriages to break down. 
And if anything, I would say maybe it isn't finance as number one, but maybe communication over finance. Because um, like you said, in the example you just gave, you know, this couple went on vacation together, they were supposed to split the cost and he ended up paying for everything. So maybe he was more upset that something was agreed upon and then broken than actually yeah, having then to it, pay for it. In some respects, he has himself to blame because he didn't say anything. <laughs> You want to ruin their exactly. holiday and by so, saying, well, excuse me, you're supposed to be helping pay for some of these meals, right? And so you're right. I think that their their communication is an issue. I think communication about finances might might be more of an issue than actual communications. But I think it is very important to talk about. And, and we've had, you know, me and my husband have had several re-talks, you know, because we've been trying to decide whether to move or what to do. And so we kind of discuss it. But I just still think there's a taboo. I mean, there's still a taboo about talking about finance. There's a taboo about talking about how much you get paid. And I I personally don't like it. I think, you know, you can, first of all, I don't understand that the taboo of talking about how much you get paid because anyone can Google or go on indeed.com or, you know, glassdoor.com and figure out a salary range. But I, I do feel that there is a negative energy or stigma when I've been at, you know, dinner parties or talking with people and, and the conversation of pay range or, or those things come up and, and maybe it has to do with people being embarrassed that they're not getting paid as much as they should, or I'm not sure what, where that comes from, but I've oh, felt it's very it and cultural seen it firsthand. Too, right? if, you, if you go to China, you meet people, they say, how nice to meet you. What did you have for lunch? Uh, which is a strange question. And, and how much do you get paid? You know, while they're shaking <laughs> your hand. Um, and so it, 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 it's an interesting kind of Western approach to not, uh, is considered quite rude to ask people how much they're paid here, um, in Canada. And I think this is true for many, um, U S states. If you work for, uh, in a government position, which includes professors at the university, everybody has their salaries online. So we can just Google, <laughs> we can Google actually find out specifically what I know, what my colleagues are being paid. It's free information that's available on the internet. Um, and yet I could never ask them what they would be being paid. They would be horrified and they certainly wouldn't tell me even though it's freely available information. So it's it's true <laughs> that we, we don't like to talk about it. Um, but I think it kind of like you, you were talking about, you know, different bargaining chips and different power plays in, in negotiation. I mean, I think that puts the worker at a disadvantage in the corporation in our case, you know, at an advantage because they're, you know, a lot of job applications these days, they don't have a salary range. You put in what you think you deserve. And and I, I, I don't I, I really like that. that. And I think it's know, actually because, particularly hard on women. Um, because women women tend to, you know, I think women tend to ask for, for less or, or certain. I mean, again, I, I don't know if my statistics are correct. I've read, read that in places. And I, I just, I don't like it. I think it gives, you know, more power. And, and I, the only reason I can assume that is because of the disparity in pay that still exists mm-hmm. well, among I mean, it's women one of the ter- It's one of the things that's driving the disparity as well. I think that women are not taught to uh, to, to um, promote themselves. And, and so you apply for a job, you don't want to say, you should pay me $120,000 a year because it kind of goes against our nature, whereas men are more willing to do that. And so it, it's one of the things that actually drives this wage inequality they have because Women are just more reluctant to ask for it. But what's even more horrifying is that women who do ask for it are actually punished, right? If you're afraid for negotiating and you're a woman, um, you have good reason to be afraid because the evidence suggests that you do, you do not fare well in a negotiation, not the way, same way that 
than men do. But you know, I just thought of something else. You know, if you you know people talk about going on blind dates and they walk into a, the restaurant and they see somebody and they're like, oh my gosh, how can I get out of this? You know, one way to do that would just be to simply sit down and say, so how much do you earn? <laughs> this would be a great strategy, right, to get out of a date that you don't want to be on. It is a great strategy. Um, unfortunately, we have to wrap up. But before we do, I just have one more question. Uh, you are Canadian and you're in Canada. And I want to ask you, why in the heck does your Canadian book cover look way more sexy than the American well, book you cover? Know, Come it, on. It's really, really interesting <laughs> dealing with two different publishers. Um, I, I'm not saying anything against my American publisher. Um, but they were much more puritanical <laughs> about what the book was going to be about than my Canadian. The Canadians are like, yeah, sex work, bring it on. But the publisher is like, oh, no, maybe we should exclude all the sex. Because originally it was going to have a whole sex work chapter. Um, and and it, it was really interesting dealing with the, the two different um, – two different perspectives. I don't think Canadians are as scared off by the ideas of talking about sex. I mean, we have our own hang-ups, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, the, the Canadian publisher actually produced the cover first, and we were all really excited about it, and we sent it to the American publisher and went, look at this awesome cover, and the, the Americans went, no, <laughs> no, we're not doing that. <laughs> I love the Canadian cover. It has a very mm -hmm. sexy lady straddling yeah, a statistic. Yeah, you know, actually, <laughs> that was, the, the pinup girl was my idea. I was uh, traveling around in Europe, and we were in Milan, and I was looking at a book of pin pictures of pinup girls, and I thought, I really want to have a pinup girl on the cover of my book. You know, I just love how empowered the pinup girls are, right? They're sexy clothes. <laughs> uh, and so I proposed that to them, and they were like, great, that sounds fabulous. And so that's what they did. So, yeah, I also like the Canadian cover. But, you know, I like the American cover, too. It's it's clever. So I, I like the Canadian one. I was a little jealous. I was like, is she giving her Canadian, you know, co-countrymen the Korean better cover? cover <laughs> There's covers all over the world. Uh -oh. The Korean cover really surprised me because... <laughs> It's like a beer bottle with money in the top with a condom pulled over the top of the bottle. It's <laughs> just like, holy <laughs> smokes, the Koreans went like full hog on this. <laughs> so how can the listeners find you, follow you, buy your book, um, Well, the and, best way to find, find out me more. is the way that you found me, which is on Twitter, because I'm constantly there. Um, so I'm at, I'm at Dollars and Sex. Um, and then, uh, you know, of course, my book is available at uh, Chapter... Um, chapters, I'm sorry, this is Canadian to me, I, at Barnes and Noble and, and Amazon. Um, you know, I have a Facebook group, Dollars and Sex. So if you Google Dollars and Sex, you're going to find me there. And also her website is marinaadshade.com, correct? Um, yeah, actually, and you know, that's I'm, your blog I'm as well. I'm actually writing you, Time at the moment. So you'll also find me at time.com. That's where my new blog is at the moment. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, you guys find her and buy her book, Dollars and Sex, and find out all of the interesting information and more. We did not get to talk about everything, unfortunately. This has been Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran. Don't forget to visit our sponsors, HugMeTease.com. Spread love, give a hug, HugMeTease.com. Guys, don't forget, go on iTunes, click on the subscribe button. It really helps us a lot. We've gotten so many positive comments lately, and I love all the emails, but subscribing helps us out even more because it pushes us up on the podcast um recommendation list on iTunes. Subscribe on Stitcher as well. And if you would like to support the podcast, we are now accepting donations through Bitcoin. So go on our website, outoftheboxpodcast.com and click on the support button. This has been Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran. 